0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 365 of them now, and if this is new to you, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and check out the past interviews menu where you'll see them organized in various ways. Also this whole production is made possible by the support of appreciative viewers and, listeners. and So if you appreciate it, and if you feel like supporting it in any amount, um, there's a PayPal button on every page of bathgap.com, and we appreciate those who have been supporting it. And part of their support has gotten me out to California for the Science and Non-Duality Conference, which starts tonight. But first, today, I'm going to interview my good friend, Michael Rodriguez. Um, I say good friend even though we just met in person last night, because... For quite a few months we've been corresponding by email and uh, including a couple of friends in the correspondence such as David Buckland and Susanna Marie and we really felt an affinity from the start and uh, had very lively conversations which um, in preparation for this interview Michael had the kindness to consolidate into a series of notes and a little bit later in the conversation we'll go through those notes and make sure we've covered them all because there's really some juicy stuff in there. And I think you're going to find this a very interesting conversation. Michael's a very bright guy with a very dedicated background, both to his traditional education and to his spiritual education. So that's what we're going to start talking about, first of all, is your background. Mm -hmm. um, How you ended up where you are today.
1: (laughs) Right. First of all, thank you for having me on the show. You're
0: welcome. It's a pleasure.
1: Thank you. Well, if we were talking about the story of Michael, um, I would say that that begins really when I was a kid, uh, around six or seven years old, uh, when I had a spontaneous question arise, which was, when you get to the edge of the universe, what is on the other side? Mm -hmm. And somehow that made an indelible impression on the psyche and really initiated um, a lifelong quest to discover what's true. Um, somehow that was endemic to the way my mind works, that sort of questioning, and it led me eventually onto a conscious spiritual quest. The next big moment, I would say, is when I had in high school a teacher as a senior uh, in my English class. So wait a minute.
0: Six or seven, you had a conscious spiritual quest? Six or
1: seven, I'd say, was the first glimmer of conscious spiritual quest huh. prior to that there was no wonderings reflecting yeah. there was no sense of uh, being on a path yeah but somehow that but once you had that little
0: glimmer you, know, you just couldn't forget it uh, there was i couldn't forget it it
1: somehow was a necessary precursor to getting the ball rolling mm-hmm. and i ironically the the work or perhaps not ironically it's quite fitting that the work I do now really directly addresses that question, mm. but not from a traditional materialist standpoint. But
0: What question does it address?
1: The question of what is real, what is the reality of the universe, mm-hmm. is there something that's quote-unquote on the other side? So the way that I work now is to start from uh, the experiential realization of boundless awareness, or consciousness itself. I use those two words synonymously, although sometimes I make a distinction between them for pedagogical purposes, which we can talk about too. But essentially, uh, the realization ultimately was that there is no boundedness to whatever this is. And so somehow the mind had posed a question when I was a child that was insoluble to the mind, but that was, in a sense... Solvable experientially, much later, yeah. and after decades of searching and seeking yeah. and wondering and self-inquiry.
0: Okay, so um, you had this great English teacher in yeah. high school, as did I. For some reason, uh-huh. English teachers they, were always the best. They were, you know, even yes. though I didn't go on to become an English major in college yeah. or anything, but. They had the most intelligence and sensitivity and yes, thoughtfulness.
1: They, and, they do. In my
0: experience. Yeah,
1: they, there's a, a heartful quality yeah. to a really good English teacher yeah. because they understand the soul. Mm-hmm. Literature uh, is really a spiritual, in, in my experience, is, is really a spiritual exercise reading literature, reflecting on it, um, becoming one with it, memorizing it in order to really get the essence of a poem or a passage is a spiritual discipline in itself. And in fact, we find this even in spiritual traditions like in Christianity, they have Lexio Divina, divine reading, which is taking a passage from a, a scripture from the Bible in, in that case and, and meditating on it. Uh, in my experience, that was always part of the process as a kind of Lectio Divina with classic literature. Mm-hmm. I was doing it also with spiritual literature, but somehow that was built into the way that I approached it. Mm-hmm
0: seems like with literature, there would be as much variation in the spiritual depth of it as there is among people in general. I mean, some people are just rather crude and superficial and others are very deep and insightful and, um, you know, look at books today that are available. I suppose suppose maybe what, what qualifies something as really classic literature is that there is some depth to it and you had your your pulp fiction novels yes. back in the 1600s, but they didn't stand the test of time, right. is that true?
1: That's part of it. Yeah. They ask certain perennial questions mm. that have no definitive answer, because they're really plumbing the depths of the psyche and of the soul, and there's no end to that. So if you read the great literary figures, there, you, you, can never, you can never finish reading a great piece of literature. Mm-hmm just like you can never finish reading say the bhagavad gita sure because there's or the the Bible. levels and levels Absolutely. and levels and right. no matter how much you think you know about it as you continue to develop in a relative sense mm-hmm. and go back to these texts you see deeper and deeper levels right. that you missed yeah. for the first 20 30 years sometimes
0: until perhaps you surpass the depth of the author if that you think
1: well the the depth of the author makes no difference in the sense that the text itself is kind of an autonomous being. Mm-hmm.
0: Doesn't it reflect his state of consciousness, though? You, you read Shakespeare, doesn't it mm-hmm. go as deep as Shakespeare was? And then, uh, Which is infinite. <laughs> he in particular, or everyone? No,
1: everyone, of course. But the, the creativity that someone like that brings to a text right. has no limits. Mm-hmm. So you could read Hamlet forever yeah. and never exhaust its potential meaning just like you could read the Bible for the rest of your life, and never quite pin down Jesus to be this rather than that. Right. Because it's it a, a literary text is alive. It's, it's not a dead, inert thing. The experience of reading a text is a living experience. And you're always changing. So the text changes with you, because it's a, a meeting.
0: Some people feel that great composers like Beethoven, Mozart, were divinely inspired, that they were just sort of conduits for some something much deeper that wanted to be expressed in the world. Do you feel like that may be true of, of um, writers also?
1: I think it's true of all artists. Hmm. That creative impulse um, comes from the unknown. Beethoven marveled at it himself. M- Mozart did. Didn't know where these tunes came from. <laughs> would wake up in a hole symphony would be in his mind. In a flash. In a flash. Yeah. Flash. And then it just had
0: to take the all time he had to, to, write do it down. to write it down. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And that's a mystery. Yeah. And no one can claim to understand that. Hmm. In a sense, it's a mystery as grand and as ineffable as the creation of anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It all comes from the same source. And I think that artists are aware of that. And so even though you could create anything and it would still be coming from the source. Artists are consciously, in a sense, conduits mm-hmm. for that which is transcendent. Right. And when it comes through, when it breaks through into from the realm of the uncreated to the created, it's permeated and saturated with its origin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And somehow that communicates to us. And we all know this. There's nothing terribly grandiose about what I'm saying. I think everybody knows this when they encounter beauty. Mm-hmm. It's universal, a universal human experience.
0: Nice. Yeah. So you ended up going on to get four degrees, three master's degrees, <laughs> two, <laughs> two master's degrees, and a PhD. Right. Or is yeah. it, What's the fourth? A bachelor's degree? You're counting yeah, the and fourth, four. Yeah, oh, that as one year. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your master's degrees were in literature and.
1: Yeah. Uh, no. One of them is in Irish literature, uh-huh. um, and one of them is in comparative religion. Okay and then the PhDs in literature as well. Mm-hmm. And that was a thrill for many years. I, As I graduated high school and found myself in college and enjoying very much the study of literature, uh, I felt very alive and as though I were following my dharma. just felt very normal and natural that I would be studying this and that I would go on hopefully one day to teach it. Uh, I wanted to teach as well as my high school teacher had taught and I had seen Dead Poet Society, oh, yeah. which had an enormous impact on me. That mm-hmm. movie really transformed uh, the way that I saw the world and instigated, um, brought out of me this, this desire to be of service in that way. Mm-hmm. To, be, to, to express my passion in a way that would help wake students up to their own divine potential. And I couldn't always speak of it in spiritual terms, but that was always the subtext. Yeah. That each of us has infinite potential, and if we can uh, somehow tap into that through great literature, you know that would be something really divine. Mm. That 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 literature helps us discover, as Robert Frost said, it helps us discover what we didn't know we knew. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Which always stuck stuck with me. You know, there's levels that we do know, but we're not conscious of it. Sure. And so literature makes us conscious of ultimately consciousness itself, which for me is the, the great realization that it's consciousness that is conscious. And it when we actually look for it, we can't find it, despite the fact that it's I am, it is undeniably present and conscious. Mm.
0: I think it's worth mentioning that, in, in my opinion, uh, we each possess, you know, the, what we might call the home of all knowledge mm-hmm. deep yes. within our awareness yes. uh, kind of a, a vast repository of energy, intelligence, creativity wisdom, yeah. all of that, and uh, you know most people just sort of tap into just a tiny fraction of it yes. and, and try to live their lives on that basis yes as if we 're all walking around multimillionaires and yet yes. we 're begging at street corners you know because yes. we, we've forgotten we have that bank account
1: yeah it's the difference between being Satisfied with relative knowledge, which is the norm, mm-hmm. and we assume that that's true knowledge. And
0: getting some little fragment yes. of it because that's all right. I can get that's in a lifetime.
1: And and most people live at that level. Mm-hmm. And the level that you're describing so beautifully right now is the repository right. of where relative novel knowledge fl- novel uh, speaking of literature where relative knowledge flows mm-hmm. from. And. Okay. Ultimately, the only thing that can satisfy the yearning for absolute knowledge, which is there, and we mistake for relative knowledge, is the recognition, the direct realization of the repository, the source Mm. from which all relative knowledge flows, and that instills in us the peace that passeth all understanding. Yeah. And I think everyone is in search of that, and, and it's described differently in different traditions, it's verbalized differently, but the source is simple and single, and it's universal.
0: Yeah. The Upanishads have this this one, I forget which Upanishad, but they say something like, it's not for the sake of the, the, the wife that the wife is dear, but for the sake of the self that mm-hmm. the wife is dear. It's not for the sake of wealth that the wealth is dear, but for the sake of the self that the wealth is dear. And it goes on and ticks mm-hmm. off a number of things that mm-hmm. people might strive after in life uh-huh. and um, you know makes the point that whatever satisfaction we derive from external things is just a sort of a paltry reflection yes. of, the, of the ocean of fulfillment that yeah. resides within.
1: Yes, And it's here.
0: Which is not to say we shouldn't enjoy the external no. things, but without also tapping into that ocean of fulfillment that resides within, yes. we're really shortchanging ourselves.
1: Yeah, and in a sense, um, it seems when we're talking about it like this, so theoretical and far off, but it's here, it's always here. This presence that does not come or go. This ocean of knowing and of being, which are synonymous. So This this sense of being is is... It has an intrinsic knowing quality, although when we go deeply into what that means, even that description that I just gave is paltry,
2: because
1: it's prior even to that concept, it's prior to any concept or idea or experience even. Prior to everything, but it's here, not prior in time, but just prior to the first movement out by mind, it's here. And the irony of this spiritual quest is that the whole thing takes place here. It's all a mental movement that has no substance or reality to it, and it's just a simple noticing although it doesn't seem so simple when we're struggling to try to understand who we are.
0: So Michael, we've talked a bit about your fascination with, or your love of literature, and um, your academic pursuit of that, and um, we talked a bit about when you were seven, you had this spiritual experience that really got you thinking about the deeper questions, Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously, you know, skipping forward, you're a dedicated spiritual teacher now, and that's your primary focus. Yeah. Um, so how did your interest in spirituality emerge in the midst of your academic life and eventually eclipse it?
1: That's a, it's a great question. Emerge is a good word, because it really did emerge out of the academic work. Mm-hmm. When I was in college, I had uh, two professors, and particularly subsequently became dear friends of mine, who introduced me to the wisdom of the East. And... Uh, one of my professors had been a student of tony packers Mm -hmm. um, who was initially philip kaplow's dharma heir and then broke from him when she had encountered krishnamurti's work Mm. and really started her own bare bones meditation center in upstate new york so i had met philip kaplow when i was in college and had gone to some retreats of his when he was down in florida hollywood florida during his retirement Mm And I just fell in love with Zen immediately. Hmm. And I just felt a, a deep, uh, kindred, karmic connection. Yeah. And as though it, it had been uh, in my blood for lifetimes. So as soon as I met him, um, there was a deep resonance. I had read The, the Three Pillars of Zen by Kaplow, had that under my arm when I went to, to meet him the first time. and uh, It was a very powerful experience, and that led to... The beginning of really a 20-year commitment to zazen, to sitting, mm. meditation, and um, working with Tony Packer for, for a number of years in, in retreats. And that was all going on simultaneously with the academic work. Mm. So whatever I was doing in uh, my classes was dovetailing with the experiential aspect uh, in retreats and sashims and other, other work with mm. particularly Tony Packer. Um, for a long period of time, uh, who was my main teacher early on, mm-hmm. and learned so much from her.
0: As a college professor teaching
1: literature, yeah. were you subtle about your
0: fascination and in, with Zen and, and spiritual teachings, or did you just bring it right in there and, and re- refer to it explicitly?
1: That, that's a great question. Uh, a little of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, in academia, one has to be careful about what you say, yeah. which was one of the reasons I ended up. Not feeling comfortable in it but there were t- courses that I would teach uh, in theology for instance, uh, or religion and literature mm-hmm. where I could explore these topics more overtly but it was often in the context of uh, talking about literature and spirituality more in a, in a in an implicit sense right but it always came through somehow yeah. and that's what's interesting no matter what I taught the spirit of the inquiry that I was personally engaged in would somehow manifest itself. And it often manifested itself in my passion as a teacher. One of the most common reports I would get from students was how passionate I was. Mm. And there's something about passion that's uh, infectious. Yeah, And I experienced it with my own English teacher. You probably did too in Mm -hmm. high school with yours. But there was something that communicates in that and that... Speaks to students.
0: Did many of your students um, actually uh, get interested in spirituality? Did you they light did. a fire under a lot of them? I did.
1: I did. Yeah. Were, I've, I've had students come back to me and say that the, the, the class with me inspired them to uh, go to divinity school wow. or. Uh, you know, study to become a religion major in college. Mm-hmm. I did get that. And I also had students come back to me and say that every week they came to class, they felt like it was their therapy session. <laughs> I actually got that a lot. Huh. It was a common theme, although I would never I would never talk about that. Right. But that was the flavor of, of a lot of the classes. with the, it was, There was a sense of sharing, of talking about life, and applying the literature to real-life situations. And so I would always talk anecdotally about whatever I was learning in my own life, and how I was applying some of the lessons that were coming out of the literature, because I do feel that literature helps us live a better life, mm-hmm. helps us to know yeah. who we are, essentially like any great spiritual text. Yeah, They help us understand who we are, uh, and in an ultimate sense, who we are absolutely, which is beyond the name and the form. Mm-hmm. But that, and, and you can get that sort of message in some of the deeper literature by. Shakespeare, um, or even someone like Samuel Beckett, who might not initially seem uh, like a spiritual writer, but in my view, deeply spiritual, because he was concerned first and foremost with human suffering, and the relief from suffering, and glimmers of truth that come through Beckett's writing here and there. And I was always eager to communicate that to the students, uh, those glimmers of truth that were coming through even the darkest of literature.
0: So... You've alluded to the fact that you eventually became disillusioned with the academic life. Um, My guess is that that kind of snuck up on you like a thief in the night. Uh, Incrementally, it didn't hit you. You didn't wake up one morning and think, all right, I can't do this. But it it must have begun to gnaw at you more and more. It did, it did.
1: Uh, Over a, a long period of time, it started to become less and less fulfilling. Mm. Uh, because my heart really was moving more and more as my own personal journey was developing um, in the relative sense. Uh, it was becoming more and more consuming, and it was difficult for me to talk about anything other than that.
0: Were there many of your peers who appreciated
1: what you were doing, or were you kind of a very fish out of water? F- fish out of water. There, yeah. were, there were maybe one or two who were on a similar kind of path,
2: yeah.
1: and they were very dear, close friends, but only a couple. For the most part, it was a very heady environment. Yeah. And I was finding as I was going deeper into my own truth that I was dropping more and more from the head to the heart
2: mm-hmm.
1: and to the felt sense of being. And it's very difficult to teach in an academic environment unless you're in your head. Yeah. That's, that's what it
0: is. That's what it is, right.
1: For the most part.
0: And I like just singing on Kumbaya. <laughs>
1: well, suppose. yeah, and, and it, <laughs> right. And there's not much of a container for truth beyond the mind. I mean, it really is meant to Mm. fill students with relative knowledge and then get them to spit that back in one way or another, either on tests or in their writing. And it's a very structured formulaic kind of system that started to feel less and less true and authentic to me because I wanted my students to. I wanted them to be free.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I found myself holding them to standards, academically, that didn't feel good to me. Mm-hmm. You know, judging them on their writing, having and for, being forced to give them grades, uh, that didn't necessarily reflect what they were getting out of the class, yeah. but they didn't conform necessarily to the rubrics that we had set forth. So it was not a very, it didn't feel good. You know, it, it was not in alignment, I would say, with who I was and who I wanted, what I wanted for my students, which was for them, to find out who they, <clears throat> excuse me, who they were, who they truly were. Yeah. And so that self-inquiry was always a part of everything I did. And I always wanted them to deconstruct everything they thought they knew. I was always ha- trying to help them to come out of their conceptions and, and their ideations and their beliefs about who they were and trying to lead them more into an inquiry about the nature of themselves, the self, in the, in the truest sense. And everything I did, whether it was Emerson or Thoreau or T.S. Eliot or Wallace Stevens or Shakespeare, Robert Frost, uh, it was always geared towards uh, self knowledge. Mm. So it was a natural, it was a very natural movement for me to leave academia eventually after a decade of teaching full time at the university level and to share in a different way. And I feel now like I'm really drawing on the deep reservoir potential myself to be of service, to be helpful to people who are there for that specifically. Yeah. People come because they're suffering and they want to know who they really are beyond identification with thoughts and emotions and body.
0: It's interesting, your point about academia being very heady, you know, yeah. intellectual. Um, And most people say, yeah, oh, that's what it's supposed to be. But it's interesting to contrast that with the traditional guru kula in India where there's intellectual knowledge being presented. There's devotion and love and respect for the teacher among the students and uh, from the teacher to the students. There's that mutual love and heart level Mm -hmm. thing that's very explicitly cultured. Mm -hmm. There's service in terms of some kind of Work that contributes mm-hmm. to the community and so mm-hmm. on. So it's kind of more multifaceted. It's as mm-hmm. if it, it takes into account all of one's faculties as a developing human being, rather than just the intellect. Mm-hmm. Seems like our whole society is a little top-heavy and, top and, and lacking in those other qualities. It is it because is. of the nature of the educational system. It's and in fact, I mean, they're always cutting the, the stuff yeah, that, the arts. It, yeah, the yeah. arts and and you know stuff that are considered. Frivolous yes. and impractical, correct? You know, for earning a living.
1: That's right. That's <laughs> right, and that's because we live in a very materialist culture. Yeah, that's based on the accumulation of stuff and of technology mm-hmm. and progress in the technological sense. And unfortunately, um, we haven't made as much progress, perhaps, uh, in terms of our moral and spiritual development as we have technologically, which is a dangerous. Place to I be. think we're paying, paying a price for it. We are paying a price. You know,
0: yes. I mean, even just take any example, the environmental crisis. Absolutely. It's a direct reflection of regarding the world as a, a mechanistic resource that we can extract yes. stuff from yes. for our own benefit. Yes. Uh, yes. And, you know, no sort of appreciation for the world as a living being or for, you know, love of animals and nature and mm-hmm. all that from the heart level. It's just... Yeah. So we're seeing, we're seeing the symptoms in the world symptoms. of the sort of education that um, has been predominant.
1: Yes. Yes. It's um, one, of, one of the things I always tried to evoke in my students was awe and wonder, mm, which I think is very rare nowadays. They're so bombarded by so much stimulation on so many levels that we're sort of deadened to the living, vibrant reality of this moment. We're sort of stuck in our heads or we're stuck in front of a a computer screen and we forget that this moment is alive with conscious intelligence. And as the awakening started to unfold here, that became more and more pronounced so that and it ended up just swallowing up everything.
2: Mm.
1: That sense of that of of conscious intelligence, that the body itself, which Mm -hmm. we think of as this thing, this lump of flesh, is actually living. It's conscious. It's intelligent. It's sensitive. It's fundamentally undefended and free. And everything is made of that. And that was one of the great awakenings here, was that it's not just the body that's conscious and intelligent, but everything that is experienced is made of that same conscious, intelligent principle, Mm -hmm. which is synonymous with our true self.
0: Yeah. It's ironic because even though science might be held culpable for the sort of dead mechanistic view of the world that is so predominant, on the other hand, science has enabled us to understand matter in such intricate, deep, subtle ways that if we appreciate what it's actually showing us, it evokes the sense of awe and wonder that you mentioned a little while ago. Mm -hmm. It's like you look at a single cell, you look at a grain of sand, you look at a little bug on the sidewalk, and look closely enough and you realize, what an amazing, miraculous thing, so full of intelligence, you know? So, I mean, in a way, science might be able to uh, redeem itself by helping us come to appreciate by, by have, being a tool not the only tool but a tool in our toolbox which could help us really appreciate the wonder of life more so than ever
1: hopefully I think a good scientist has that as a foundation some of the
0: great ones yeah
1: some articulate one, it absolutely yeah. and Einstein talked a lot about the necess- necessity of imagination right and of creativity uh-huh. and of wonder yeah he did. and he had spiritual experiences he had divine experiences of the infinite intelligence that is what we call the universe and so, if we can somehow kindle in ourselves that innate sense of wonder that we all have as children, and that somehow gets calcified by our education system, primarily, mm-hmm. and our cultural conditioning.
0: And just the constant onslaught of life yeah, a <laughs> numbing us. constant onslaught of
1: life as we know it in this modern Western culture, although it's not just Western now, it's really a, a worldwide phenomenon.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was um, riding home from our dinner last night that we had at the restaurant, and... Uh, my one of my hosts was saying that she was surprised there aren't sort of more incidents of violence in the streets mm-hmm. and so on. She said, because life is just so intense for most people. Yes. You know, and I'm kind of oblivious to that, living in Fairfield, Iowa, my mm-hmm. idyllic little existence. But she said most people are just dealing with so much mm-hmm. and there's so much pressure that it's a, it's a, it's a wonder that people can withstand it. Um, it is. So somehow or other, you know, if that's the way it tends to be out there, you know... Uh, it, it begs the question: Is spirituality a luxury for those who have somehow arranged their lives to have all kinds of leisure time and stuff? No. Or can people who are really in the thick of it uh, get some relief and, and benefit from these kinds of things we're talking yeah, about?
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I think I think the latter. It's it, it's not a luxury. It's a necessity. Mm-hmm. You know, as I see it, waking up as a necessity. Waking up from the dream of living. Um, you know, in separation and fear and desire and anxiety. and All of that's not practical, actually. What we think is practical is not practical. <laughs> it's actually highly impractical. I mean, how well can you function when you're racked with thoughts yeah. and anxiety and fear?
0: Exhausted. I mean, they talk about people. Yeah. Ariana Huffington's on a campaign these days just to get people to sleep yes. a normal number of hours right. because she feels like we're our whole society is sleep-deprived mm-hmm. in addition to being... Bombarded with sensory stimuli,
1: yeah, yeah we're, we're not
0: really a conducive situation for not. for
1: deep experience. It's not. And what we find interestingly, when we slow down practically, just I know that there are mothers out there who have children who are screaming, and they have to put food on the on the table, and you know they may be working two jobs. But there are moments in every day for all of us, even if it's three to five minutes, mm-hmm. where if we can just drop down into the felt sense of being over and over again for small periods, that has a tremendously healing effect on the body-mind. Yeah, And over time, that really accumulates. Even if it's just time in, in the bathroom alone, or time walking to your car, yeah. or time from the car to the job, there are moments every day when everybody does have, it takes a, a little bit of earnestness, as the would say, yeah. and commitment. But what's the alternative? pain and suffering. Yeah.
0: And how many hours a day does the average American watch television? Yes. You know? Or
1: play video games. Yeah.
0: Or go around looking for Pokemon Go characters or something. Yes. You know, if they're that age. We do. Uh, We fritter away a lot. of. So there is time. It's just a matter of knowing what to do with that time and having the the, the ability to kind of stop the rat race
1: and tune in. Just tune in. Very simply. It's like down to earth. And I'm not trying to talk about anything uh, grandiose or abstract here. It's really a very... Functional, down to earth. You could call it a technique, but it's just resting, resting, and and dropping down, and I call it softening. Yeah. You know, instead of surrendering, and we could say surrender, but that has such loaded connotations that just softening the um, density of the body and the mind is extremely therapeutic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: as well as making the body and the mind. Uh, more transparent over time to the, the true nature of the self, which is weightless and spaceless and timeless, is the, the consciousness itself, we could say, um, it makes the body-mind more permeable to true nature. Although yeah. everything is true nature all the time, it's difficult to notice when the body-mind is just a, a series of contractions and... Um, tightness and restriction, which is not the natural state. That has become the, ne- the normal state, but it's not natural to be defended and constricted and fearful unless you're in the presence of a saber-toothed tiger.
0: <laughs> but
1: yeah. we live that way all the time in situations that are not actually in any way harmful or threatening, but it's, it's all psychologically driven. Yeah. So the work that I do now is very much about helping people uh, disidentify and there's nothing unique in this work necessarily. Hopefully I present the work in a, in a unique way, but it's really very universal. And um, Many teachers out there are doing wonderful work like this, um, but just helping people to wake up from identification with uh, name and form.
0: Yeah. Now you yourself practiced Zen for 20 years, right. and how many hours a day typically did you do that?
1: I was a hardcore... Zen students.
0: Like hours a day. Uh, Many
1: hours a day. Yeah. I would just sit. Right.
0: And retreats and the whole works. Um, So sometimes I see a bit of a disconnect between people like yourself and myself, for that matter, who've practiced hours a day Mm -hmm. for decades, Mm -hmm. and who then attain some degree of benefit from that, profoundly perhaps, but then turn around and say,
1: there's nothing to
0: do. Nothing to do, or just a few minutes here and there. You know, and it's like, are people really going to attain satisfactory results unless they learn some kind of effective practice and dedicate a reasonable amount of time to it? Right.
1: Well, as you know, in our discussions back and forth, I, I tend not to be dogmatic one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I feel free to flow uh, between all the different levels and layers of consciousness so that I don't get stuck anywhere. and right. So that I can be really available to pe- be helpful to people wherever they think they are. Mm-hmm. So for some people, it's appropriate to have a really um, structured sitting practice. Yeah. For other people, doing it in the midst of daily living, in terms of karma yoga, mm-hmm. is perfectly appropriate and helpful. Uh, and some people, it's a combination of the two. Some people don't need to do anything except live their life and listen to teachings and read spiritual texts and something is happening alchemically
0: in that yeah. process. That, that attitude is kind of behind the creation of Buddha at the gas pump. I mean, yeah. the idea is to present a whole array of different teachers and, and people gravitate to what's appropriate for them. Yes. And, you know, very often I'll put up an interview and I'll get an email from one person saying, that sucked, I didn't like, that was your worst one ever. And <laughs> someone else will say, that was your best one ever. I really love that. So it's obvious that people just have different affinities. Yes. And... You know, the, no, one size does not fit all. It doesn't, but, yeah. you, but, you know, perhaps we can make a general statement and you can make a general statement about what one should do at the very least if one is interested in all this and just wanting to make some kind of progress.
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. I think if that spark is there to find out what's true, to find out who you really are, I would suggest... Putting as much time and energy into that as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to Nsargadatta, my root teacher, he would call that earnestness. Just being earnest, sincere, honest with oneself. That if you want to know yourself, if you want to wake up from suffering, then it's just common sense that that's what you would put your attention on. But so many of us are complacent in our suffering and kind of want to wake up but are just kind of so comfortable in our, in our lives that we're not really willing to give up our little luxuries.
0: Yeah. You know? And we probably don't need to. Not necessarily. We can begin to just introduce a second element yeah. of something that is akin to what we're talking about here. Some, some practice, some teaching, some focus, some reading. Just being more earnest about spirituality. Yes. And just see what ends up dropping off in your life. You might find you, you're you not going to lose interest in your children. You're not going to lose interest no. in, in if some, any sort of healthy pursuit. But well, we don't
1: know what's going to happen.
0: No, we don't. But people are, you know, there's this sort of a stigma against spirituality that you're going to become a monk or right. you're going to become aloof and detached and disinterested in your children. I was listening to some Adjushanti recordings the other day, and the woman was saying just that. She said, I love my children more than anything in the world. I'm afraid that if I pursue this too far, I'm going to not love them anymore. I'm going to lose interest in them. So those concerns are They do
1: come up. And and they're mind concerns. They're they're concerns that the mind throws up to stall the issue. Mm. They're not true. And they're just these little... Doubts. Doubts that that, that come up. Which can be dispelled. They can be. I mean... Knowing oneself. This is the point I was trying to make that knowing oneself is not impractical, right? It actually enlivens whatever your Whatever your role is in this life. If it's to be a mother, you can only be a better mother if you know who you are You're not going to be a worse mother. Yeah, if you are not identified with thoughts that make you feel miserable How could that be right? You know it, it, it actually will bring back Life and vitality and truth and goodness and whatever we're doing, whatever if we're called to be a a mother or a cab driver or a teacher even, it could could happen in any field. It's the spirit with which we're coming. It's not what we're doing that's really secondary to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is really just to get clear for ourselves about what's true. And then whatever flows from that will be true. There's... So I, I, I just am encouraging for people to be honest with themselves and to... I mean, in my own case, uh, there was a point where I really had to give everything up. Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it, it was that intense for me, but it doesn't have to take that shape for everybody. And now things have come back, and so it was just a period of purification. Yeah. And then now there's a movement back into sure this role... And, and a, when you
0: had to give everything up, was it a leap in the dark or, or, or into yes. an abyss? Or was it more like, all right, I'm leaving the garden, but I'm entering the house? No, I'm, I'm, it was an abyss. Was it?
1: Yeah, because I didn't know, I couldn't see what was coming. Mm. And there was no security. There was no um, guarantee it was going to work out mm-hmm. in, a, in a good sense, the relative sense. Yeah. Uh, I'd left a job that paid well and uh, benefits. And, and I don't recommend that. Right. People have to just follow their own truth yeah uh, so that was my that was my truth but for me it was necessary to face the fears that came up with those doomsday scenarios mm-hmm. being homeless and <laughs> having no income and having no insurance which is a big one that's conditioned into us the fear sure. of getting sick and yeah. not having a doctor to go to what do you do then right um, and, and those are legitimate concerns at some level and so I'm not dismissing that, sure that. but they but
0: and to, the, the more responsibilities you have the more legitimate they are if you have five kids you know, you're just
1: not going to walk out on them. No, and, and I would never encourage that. Right. Um, but at the same time, those fears do have to be faced. Mm-hmm. The fear of survival. You know, at some level, you have to really face whatever's standing in the way of you being your authentic self. Mm. And they often revolve around money, security, and health.
2: Yeah. Those are the big ones. You know,
1: those are and those are natural human concerns. So I, I and they, you know, we I, I bow to them. Mm-hmm. I bow to those concerns and respect them. Uh, and at the same time, if they're causing uh, a sense of, of, of constriction in the being and, and a stifled sense of separation and fear, then I think that that's something that you know um, one needs to look into. Just to get at the root of where does that come from, and am I really defined by that yeah. fear? But again, this is just my my own path, and I I never make prescriptive judgments across the board about anything, because we're all unique and we're all coming from such varied places, um, and so I, I'm always always just giving provisional suggestions mm-hmm. that people can wonder about and try out if it's true for them. Just an invitation to
0: yeah. I think a good wrap-up point for this topic is Mm -hmm. that um, what we're talking about with spirituality is really gaining access to the repository of all intelligence and creativity and happiness. And so even though having that enlivened in our life might end up in a, a reshuffling of our priorities and our activities and so on it's generally going to go for the best if we're really contacting and uh, tuning to that in a genuine way. It's it's really going to be an, an enhanced life. I think most people who have really gone a long distance with this, you know, would assure you enthusiastically that they have no regrets whatsoever. Yes. Even though their life might be very different now yes. than it than it used yes. to be. Like it's really paid off. The kind of a jack and the beanstalk thing where, you know, you're really gonna end up with the riches if you if you take the Yeah.
1: And and, and the riches aren't necessarily material.
0: No. I and don't I know mean you mean to that. imply that. They no, they no. may be. I mean you might be. you might be more capable of earning it a good be. living or yes. something if you have a clearer mind and more yes. coherent you know thought process. But not necessarily that.
1: No, and that's not the point. The point is to be true. Yeah. But I have found in my own life that every time there was a softening whenever a fear arose and then following that back to from where it it flowed, following it back down to the source and not identifying with that fear mm-hmm. and then a, a moving forward regardless of it, blessings would flow.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's... Seek
0: ye first the king of... God or heaven and all else should be added unto thee. Yes, the-
1: yes. Yeah. But it's its own reward. Yes, it is. It's its own reward. It's it's that is the end in itself. Mm-hmm. Is just being true. And if material, I have noticed that it, there has been, um, you know, some amazing openings in in a number of different areas in in my life. Uh, one is making this work possible. Mm-hmm. You know, and people. Contacting for me for support and and, um, being a friend through this process, Um, so start things start to flow more synchronistically. Yeah, but it's never done for that purpose. It's done for its its own sake, Mm -hmm. and that's its own beauty.
0: And I always like to take it out to the society too, because I always feel like the individual is the unit of society. And you know, although people like yourself might be rather rare. These days, there's no reason why, as things progress, um, people with this sort of orientation couldn't become quite the norm. And if that were the case, I think that we would see a, a vast reduction in the problems that beset society because, you know, I mean, our economic problems, our environmental problems, all that are just the reflection of all our individual activities. Yes.
1: Yeah, and if, if, if just each of us, anyone listening to this, can find what's true and authentic, can find and discover this pure consciousness which is here, and waiting for for itself to be discovered by itself, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's just consciousness recognizing itself as such. If that can happen individually, then each of us will flow from that true space in whatever way is appropriate and that will have repercussions in the world yeah that will have send forth ripples that go far beyond what the eye can see mm-hmm. that it, it anytime we're, we're coming from truth uh, whatever flows from that is true and so for for some, one person it might be taking this work into their business you know it might be flowing from truth in their business and to be an enlightened entrepreneur or awakened entrepreneur and for somebody else, it might be to be an awakened mother, or an awakened bus driver, or school teacher, or doctor, or lawyer. Um, each of us has our own unique path, but if it's coming from this non-dual understanding of non-separation, then whatever it is, will be appropriate and true. Yeah, it's good and and helpful. I mean, for the community, for the society, for the family. I mean, it all yeah. is interconnected.
0: Yeah, and just to reiterate, but then we'll shift to a new topic. But a lot of times, um, this point is not brought out in spiritual circles that this actually does have societal implications. It uh, but it does. If you if you just you know, if it becomes instead of a, a novelty, a boutique thing that you know small groups of people are into, but becomes more and more of the norm. I think we're going to see vast impacts on the quality of society, and it might just be the thing that saves us from from any number of things which mm-hmm. could do us in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, the, I, I think the societal implications are, in a sense, uh, byproducts of the understanding. Um, definitely. It, yeah.
0: I mean, it has to. You have to put the horse before the cart. Yes. It's not, I'm not saying that we should work on a social level, although that needs to be done too, but I'm just saying that Secondarily. You know, we're, we're kind of tapping into the, the fuel source of, of human thriving, of human yes. creativity. And you want a forest to be green, all the individual trees have to be green. So yes. you water the root of each tree and they, they start getting green. Next thing you know, you have a green forest. Yeah.
1: yeah. And this can be tested out in everyone's life to um, you know, follow within the thread back to the sense of conscious presence or boundless awareness i call it so simple it's here it's always here everything else is changing and conscious presence is here as the reality of this moment it's shining with boundless conscious awareness and If there's an identification with thoughts, just to drop down with the attention into the felt sense of being. Thoughts don't have to disappear. They don't have to not be there. They're perfectly welcome to be there. But you can feel it in this moment, this presence that is scintillating with life. It is synonymous. It is life. And we're not separate, there's no separation from that. There's no I being alive. There's just this life living itself. There's no you and me in this space. If we're communicating from our heads, there's a you and a me, but if we're really coming from, it's another way of being, this coming from this more fundamental space of openness. It communicates at a heart level. And I can feel that in this moment. I don't know if that's your experience right now.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I can, you know, sense that there are these waves on the surface of the ocean, which we call thoughts. But we're not separate as this presence. I can't find it. I know there is undeniably the presence of awareness. Because even if I were to doubt the presence of awareness, that doubt would arise by virtue of the presence of awareness. Otherwise, I wouldn't be aware of it. So it's the one fact of experience, and it's the one that we overlook. And so this wonder and this awe that I was talking about earlier, I'm asking, you know, in a sense, I'm asking um, whoever's interested to, to be astonished by the presence of awareness. To wonder about consciousness. I mean, if you really think about it, it's mind-blowing mm-hmm. that there is consciousness. It should really stop us dead in our tracks, but we fall. But consciousness falls asleep to itself as this vibrant, alive intelligence, and dreams separation and kind of a otherness, deadness, and we go through our days like an automaton. But the way that, you know, if you just think about it this way, I put this in my book that it's uh, in one of the chapters, I, in fact, the first chapter, I was trying to point to this. The way that a video camera sees, if you were to imagine you were a video camera, just for a minute, and to look around and to see the world from the perspective of a video camera, that would be very different, wouldn't it, mm-hmm. from the way consciousness sees. In one of them there's a kind of a dead, inert panning without any knowing quality. But that is not the way you know. Right. You know as a conscious, as conscious being. And so there's an aliveness to knowing and there's an aliveness to seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and smelling that we overlook and it's available this this aliveness this joy of being this joy just to be and it's it's built into consciousness just the sense to be which is the most basic level of existence is just the sense of being that there and this is not abstract it's it's a fact that there is being it's a hard fact. In fact, it's the only thing we know for sure, that I am. And then to go deeply into the sense of what that I am-ness is, well, it's present and aware. And this is, the, this is where the heart dwells. This is the, this is the, the region of the heart. You know, Ramana Maharshi talked about the heart on the right side of the chest. The left side of the chest is more of the human heart, which experiences emotion and, and feeling and even intuition and opens and closes, literally. And the right side of the chest is more of this space. Used, Ramana used the right side of the chest as a kind of a metaphor for this space of awareness within which the human heart arises and subsides, arises and subsides, contracts and, exp- and, and expands, so this, anyway, the point is that this wide-open presence of awareness is undeniably present and aware. And the human heart functions by virtue of this divine heart that we all are. And this is an enlivening, joyful realization. It sends healing energy through the body and the mind. It's actually the healing factor of the body. And any time that attention is placed on this, it grows in warmth and sensitivity, and if we're coming from this, we can re- we really can relate to other people in a way that's unifying. You know, instead of coming from I'm me and you're you, we're coming from what we share. Yeah. This is this is share. This is there's not my, it's not mine and it's not yours. And so why would I want to be anything other than helpful and kind if, if we're not separate fundamentally it's mm. an important point yeah do unto
0: others as you would have others do unto you meaning has a deeper meaning you know yeah. because others are you
1: well I think I, I think if we're talking about the story of Jesus um, which is what you were just alluding to there, there was a deep realization there of this non-dual awareness mm-hmm. um, we can see evidence of that throughout the Gospels and and the sayings of Jesus, and also in the Gnostic Gospels in particular, but also in the Gospel of John. Um, It's a very powerful, awakened being who was awake to the fact that there was no separation between the human and the divine, and between the self and the other. Um, In Martin Buber's language, it would be the the I and the thou, as opposed to I, it. Usually we we engage with things and people like they're, they're they're objects Mm -hmm. but if we're coming from this presence then everything is is that presence in disguise it's appearing as what we would call a a wall but it's all saturated with being Mm
0: -hmm. there's a chapter in your personal story that we haven't touched on yet but that you've alluded to in some of our conversations and that was um, a lot of purification you had Mm -hmm. to undergo And I think probably most people on the spiritual path are going to have to go through a chapter like that, so it might be worth our discussing it for a few minutes.
1: Yeah, uh, that was an important period after I left academia. Um, It was just a really intense wondering about true nature and self-inquiry. And just as a natural byproduct of that, things started to fall away. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of toxins... Uh, the body-mind didn't want lots of toxins. I mean, it didn't want um, you know, alcohol or you know, meat, um, even television and movies. It just, everything became very sensitive. The yeah. body-mind became like a nerve-ending mm-hmm. during this period. And I couldn't listen to regular pop music because the lyrics were just, you know, all I could hear was codependency and yeah. um, just sounded so far removed from what I was discovering. Although at some point I started to listen to, and I still do, whenever I hear popular music and it's a love song, I, will, I started to listen to it like a devotional song. Uh-huh, right. So I would place it with you know, God or, or yeah. self or consciousness.
0: George Harrison tried to do that uh-huh. um, you know, when he was really getting into God and the Beatles had broken up and uh, he would go to concerts and he'd say, in my life I loved God more. And then the audience would boo him because they wanted the original song. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful. There was just this period of just not wanting uh, any toxins, visual, auditory, in, in, any, in any sense. Right. And that rendered the body much more soft and, and sensitive, which it always was. But this really was just coming back to that natural state. Um, Really marinating in that sense of felt sense of being for hours and hours at a time, which mm-hmm. was a joy.
2: Yeah,
1: it was not onerous. I mean, it was really it's pleasant, it's blissful. Yeah, just to be sure and not have to be in gear or doing or you know being productive in the world. You know, just to sit and watch the clouds and to be <laughs> was just utterly delightful.
2: Yeah.
1: And I was in a situation where I could do that for long periods of time, and I understand that there's some people who might not have that particular luxury, but again, there's still three to five minutes a day when sure. you can just take the mind out of gear and just be and drop down into what it means, in a felt sense, to be here.
0: Yeah. The underlying point here, Jesus said, uh, not, said something about not pouring new wine into old wineskins. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the body is an instrument through which awakening or enlightenment is lived. Yes. And there's some people who seem to dismiss the significance of having it be a fit instrument, you know. But I do think it takes a certain amount of physiological clarity. You know, the Indian tradition talks about vasanas, and yes. if, if you're full of vasanas, yes. deep impressions, then it's not a very conducive condition for living pure awareness, pure mm-hmm. consciousness. So all kinds of purificatory measures are are mm-hmm. prescribed mm-hmm. to, and you know Patanjali's got his yamas and his niyamas yeah. and so on for trans helping the the transformation of the physiology. Yeah.
1: and for and for each of us that will be different. So for mm-hmm. one person it might just be detoxing from drugs and alcohol,
0: mm-hmm. you know, or that might be level one of purification. One.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're we're all different. I mean, for me it was a whole combination of things. Yeah, and. You know, I don't feel to be prescriptive about that because, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, we have to have our malas and be doing prayers and austerities sure. in that sense. I would just say let it be natural. For I've each seen person. people
0: take it to extremes. Yeah, I'm not suggesting. Yeah, where well they get that. like, oh, I can't do anything, you know, because oh, it'll be impure.
1: Yeah, uh, I think, and that's not what I'm saying. I, I think here's what I would say: let the intelligence of the system dictate. Tune into that. Yes, what it is that's right for you. Yeah. And if each of us does that. In our own unique way, and I felt, I felt that just restedness in you just now mm-hmm. when you just did that deep sigh, which was beautiful, mm-hmm. just you know, the restedness. If we can each do that more and more, it has a tremendously healing effect not only on the body mind but also on the, the group mind
2: mm-hmm.
1: and on the group consciousness. It, tremendously. I mean, a being mm-hmm. who's in a restaurant who's at rest, you can feel that yeah. whether you know it or not.
0: And if you go to some sort of satsang and there are hundreds of people it's in that sort of state, oh, absolutely, you know, And that was a huge thing for
1: me, going through, you know, sitting with these beautiful beings. Uh, I went through, you know, several year period where I did that, particularly here and through Open Circle. Uh, just is, you know, just incredible teachers came through. Mm. Uh, they come through on a constant basis. And being able to um, sit with, you know, human beings who are at rest is such a gift. And so I'm, Satsang is such a, a beautiful invitation to, to each of us. Mm-hmm. And if one feels called to do that, you know, really um, to, to follow that intuition, I would say just follow your own intuition and be true to it as much as possible. Because that, you, the, if, you know, consciousness is supremely intelligent all we have to do is listen to it it knows and each of our body minds knows what it needs to heal and if we just give that our care, loving caring attention and then just have the earnestness to be true to it how could that be how could that go wrong yeah. how could you be a less effective human being in the world mm-hmm. if you actually followed your intuition and you know the, the body ha- is inherently a biofeedback system mm. that's what it is it was designed to be that way it
0: gives you feedback
1: it gives you immediate true. feedback and if it doesn't if it's out of tune by one fraction of an inch you will know it yeah through some uncomfortable sensation
0: it's true and, and I mean you go out and get drunk yes. and the next morning you feel like crap there's a there's a message there right. <laughs> and uh,
1: Suffering is the equivalent of, of physical pain. Physical pain is meant to give us a clue that something needs to be. Yeah,
0: my hand is on the stove. Oops.
1: Yeah, and now, we, now, but we don't do that with suffering. Yeah. Nobody would keep their hand on the stove, right? Right. Because the, the system is smart enough to know not to do that. But sure. why, 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 with suffering, do we keep doing what we know? Is harmful. Yeah, and we don't heed the same warnings. Sometimes in, in spiritual
0: circles, people are a little bit, I would say, unkind when the, the subject of suffering comes up. They they've locked into the law of karma, you know, as a mm-hmm. concept. And if somebody gets cancer or something, they feel like, well, it must be their karma. But that also brings up the question of, you know, there are all kinds of terrible suffering in the world. I mean often due to circumstances apparently beyond one's control look what's happening in aleppo these days how is that kind of suffering a feedback mechanism for us to make any kind of change um, looks like you know sometimes we just have to really grin and bear it to go through it
1: yeah well suffering of any kind is an invitation even and I know that it's difficult to say... on
0: Concentration camps, you know, the really horrific stuff. Of
1: of course. And and there are people who come through that, like Viktor Frankl,
0: who
1: who write Man's Search for Meaning, Mm -hmm. which is an extraordinary book. Or
0: Elie Wiesel.
1: Exactly. So suffering is always an invitation, even in the most extreme circumstances, to wake up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've certainly had uh, my own difficulties in life, and uh, it hasn't been smooth sailing. So I think The key is to recognize that the circumstances of one's life uh, are the way they are. For many, many, many reasons, many reasons. And a lot of this stuff happens before we're even aware of what's going on. A lot of the conditioning that's in the body-mind is conditioned before we're five years old and that becomes the dominant program of our life. The way that we view the world, the way that we experience, the way that we interact and relate, all of that is very much conditioned before we're aware that there's that, that conditioning is going on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And societally that's true too. It's there are infinite causes and conditions for everything that arises. So the question isn't the bare event so much as the attitude with which it's met. Mm-hmm. And if we can look at our suffering as an invitation to inquire into what's true regardless of the circumstances. It's tremendously powerful and liberating. And it could be in terms of health or money or the loss of a loved one. But it's always potentially instructive if we have that attitude, rather than a a victim attitude or a poor me attitude, which is not helpful at all to anyone under any circumstance. It's never helpful. Yeah. So, even if we find ourselves in, in really challenging situations, um, you know, could be a medical diagnosis of some kind, then that's an invitation to really look into whatever is arising uh, in terms of a response to that, mm-hmm. and to inquire what's true uh, in this moment, regardless of the circumstance. And if it's bringing up deep fear, then that's an invitation really to look into to go into that fear and to really experience it. Because normally we do everything not to experience whatever arises in response to circumstances. And that creates a a very powerful sense of separation Mm -hmm. from the experience. Now, if we can learn to soften that reactivity to experience and then inquire into it and trace it back to its source, then there's no longer a me against experience. And there's no me trying to work out experience and make it you know, hunky dory. Yeah. Now, there may be time when action is needed, but if it's coming from this more true space of boundless awareness, I call it, or true nature, or consciousness, whatever, presence, then the response will be not from, well, going back to the boober's I, it will become from the I, thou, a sense of non-separation from the event. So it's not that I'm having this experience and I really don't like this experience, or I'm having this experience and I really like this experience, which are both two ends of the same continuum. But to really inquire into both of them and to feel whatever is arising in the body-mind as feedback and to really heed that intuitive Advice that's coming from the system. This consciousness is supremely intelligent, and the body is consciousness. It's not that there is a body that is conscious. The body is made of consciousness. It's the life that is weaving together the cells of your body. Mm-hmm. It's weaving together the tissues. It's beating your heart. It's breathing you. It's blinking your eyes and digesting your food and growing new cells after old ones are dying and replenishing itself constantly. It, it, it's nothing but intelligence, actually. There's no, there, there's no unconsciousness to the body, actually. The body is full life. It's just aliveness, expressing and dancing. And the more that we can kind of tune into that and not feel like I am alive, not feel that I have a body, but that I am that, that's what I am. I refers to that conscious intelligence. And that's what started to sort of wake up here during this process, that non-separation from cosmic consciousness, from, which sounds rather grandiose and abstract, but it's right here in this lived experience, in this moment. It's not abstract at all. That's why I'm suggesting that we drop down with the attention into the felt sense of, of being consciousness. Not being conscious, but being consciousness. There's no one who's conscious. There's simply consciousness that's alive as the reality and the totality of everything that's arising. So that's one way to invite suffering closer rather than trying to push away or to anesthetize it, which is the norm in our cultures, mm-hmm. to drink it away or drug it away, sex it away, you know, in some way to deny it or to wallow in it. Mm which is another possibility that happens a lot, the depression. And and, and there are many reasons and causes for that, too, some physiological and, you know, there are are biochemical reasons for that as well. But at the end of the day, the the attitude uh, with which we meet whatever arises determines our experience, the quality of it. Yeah.
0: This point is particularly germane in light of the opioid epidemic that's, Ravaging many parts of the country, you know, it's like large numbers of people are trying to numb out, trying to yes. stifle yes. whatever it is they're feeling, yes. and um, you know, I mean, it, it seems very short-sighted because obviously an opioid only lasts for a sh- relatively short amount of time, and then you're going to feel even worse. Yes, but I guess people just don't feel like there's a light on the other side of the tunnel, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, if they could somehow be guided to feel through yes. whatever it was they're trying to stifle, mm-hmm. I think they would find that it, it actually does clear up and they feel way better than op- opioids could make them feel temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. They feel better all the time than, than any drug could make them feel momentarily.
1: Well, we're all seeking abiding contentment. Mm-hmm. Everyone is just wants to be at peace and happy in one way or another most of us do it unwisely because we don't know other we don't know anybody we've never been taught what peace really is right. and so we, we seek momentary peace or, or pleasure we seek passing pleasure as um, you know a way to feel a, a momentary sense of relief from the pain that we're feeling but we all know everyone knows innately that it doesn't last and it doesn't work sometimes we have to learn that lesson over and over again until we as they say you know hit rock bottom and there's just you can't do that anymore the body won't let you do it right. it has given you enough signals so that it's time to wake up from that
2: yeah.
1: and so we f- might find ourselves in some recovery program or we might find ourselves in satsang
2: yeah.
1: and I think I think getting fed up with suffering is actually important it was important for me that there was a sense that I just I can't I can't suffer anymore
0: well let me ask you about that because the account of your life you've given us so far didn't sound too horrific. Mm-hmm. You know, you had this great education, you had a teaching job that many would envy, mm-hmm. uh, you you seemed like a pretty happy guy, had all this sort of spiritual... Well, the spiritual thing was dawning ever since you were a child, but then you said you you definitely went through a sex, drugs, and rock and roll phase, uh, you know, so I'm not sure quite that where that sits in the chronology of
1: things. Well, I wouldn't go that far.
0: All right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: definitely wouldn't go that
0: far. But, you know, there was a... An indulgence in things that you later needed to purify. Um,
1: Just the normal garden variety indulgence. Normal stuff. That we all do,
0: yeah. Okay. So, um, and and we talked about this whole purificatory phase that you went through. Maybe you want to talk more about it. But at a certain point, was there finally a sort of a a breakthrough moment in which you would say you woke up? Some people say that they can mark it on a calendar. Other Mm -hmm. people say it snuck snuck up on them. It was both.
1: Okay. It was both, which is why I don't talk about it in dogmatic terms, mm-hmm. and I don't say it has to be one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, and from our conversations, one of my mantras is "and both and neither." Right. Um, you know, because I I can't say it was it was one of there were it was a progressive unfolding. When I when I think about it and construct a story and a narrative, it it seemed progressive. Mm-hmm. Of course change and progress is mental. It has to be remembered and constructed and put together in order to have the story of me over time. Mm. Of course, all we ever experience is the eternal presence of awareness, which neither comes nor goes. But if I'm constructing a narrative of my life in time, which requires memory and imagination, you know, there was this sense of slow, the slow cook for 22 years mm. of conscious slow cooking. Of yeah. course, it happened prior to that too, but sure. that was a, 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 Intentional a, for 22 <clears throat> years. Yes. Yes, but there were also stations, which mm. the Sufis, the Sufis used the word stations, like plateaus of understanding and insight where you, you can't go back. Yeah. And there were shifts in understanding that, where understanding and experience would all coalesce and then click into place. Mm. And the, once that clicks, it's, it's, it's definitive. It's, it's stable, yeah. yeah. And, you know, yes, so there were, there were moments towards the end of that purification process when there were two or three clicks where there was a shift mm-hmm. from, it was a, a 180, mm-hmm. actually, from feeling and thinking and being a separate self who was conscious to realizing that I am consciousness and that that's what I refers to. There was a moment of realization that I am the unbroken eternal continuity of pure awareness. And since then thoughts, sensations, and perceptions have no sway. They're they're still there. But the understanding has clicked that they're just passing through, are made out of awareness, are passing through awareness. But that I refers to awareness, which neither comes nor goes. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it's, a, it's a literal 180 of understanding. Because prior to that, you feel like you are someone who's making progress and who comes in and out of it. And that sense has gone of being someone who is kind of getting it and losing it, getting it and losing it, which is a common phase. Right. That happens. But there's no sense of losing myself now. I mean, that's an, it's an absolutely absurd idea right. to think that I could lose myself. It would be like thinking, I, you know, I don't know. It just seems nonsensical to me at this point. There's no losing the self. The self, without conscious being, nothing could be. So it's the foundation and reality of whatever is. And that's the that and, and there's a it there was a stabilization um, during this process where that became just normal and 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 natural again which, and no big deal yeah to be honest with you speaking
0: of Ajay again I was listening to a recording just yesterday I think uh, in which he was saying that you know initially spiritual experiences and breakthroughs can seem amazing they do and, you know, they can whoa, but we acclimate you know yeah. and we. Eventually, end up in a stable state, which doesn't seem like any big deal at all. Which, if we were to snap into it suddenly, would seem like a big deal. But mm-hmm. we acclimate.
1: Acclimate. You know, acclimate. You know mm-hmm. had his park bench years, right. where there was a period of settling into yeah. that shift.
0: You know, Ram- Ramana yes. had his cave years. He did. You know, where after he was twenty. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Quite a long time. And and that period of time will be different for, for each one of us. Um, but you know, I do like to stress and emphasize that coming, returning to the natural state which you never la- actually left really is natural it's a natural stage of evolution if you will I mean the, the ultimate realization is that the evolutionary path culminates in the realization that consciousness does not evolve but that's a paradox, right? and so there is and there isn't this evolutionary path. I
0: don't know, it's, it's, it's maybe opening. a paradox,
1: but if we're really clear on what we're talking about, then
0: consciousness doesn't evolve, but its expressions evolve, and you know, the vehicles through which it's lived evolve. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so like it's, saying electricity is the same, but you have different wattages of light bulbs and different instruments and, and you know, machines and all which channel that electricity very differently. And, and they might evolve, mm-hmm. you know, over time with t- technological progress, mm-hmm. in the te- case of that metaphor. The,
1: the, one of the tricks with evolution is that it sets up some goal. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if we can agree to have evolution without a goal, post-awakening, mm-hmm. sadhana, for instance, I would, you know, make a differentiation between pre-awakening sadhana and post-awakening. Pre-awakening, you're really on a journey somewhere.
2: Yeah,
1: and you have an idea in your mind of what that will be, but post awakening, this is complete. This is, I, in my experience in this moment, this is utter completion.
0: Yeah. It, and yet, if I were total, to talk to per- you totally twenty years perfect. from now, uh, you might say, "Whoa, it's, it's just a lot more rich than it was twenty years ago." You know, now you you you're not sort of anticipating that or longing for that and no. all because you're quite content now, which is. I think actually there is a thing where contentment becomes quite predominant and the whole seeking energy drops off because you just yes. feel so content. Yeah. But that is, in my opinion, that is not to say that continued evolution of some sort doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. it
1: does. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I it's mean, ha-
0: even in your own experience, it's I don't tricky. know when this awakening happened for you, but mm-hmm. if you, you know, to look back to mm-hmm. when that was, mm-hmm. do you feel like there's been a a, a maturation, a deepening, a refinement, a, a something uh, in some relative sense. Conscious—we're not implying that consciousness is changing anymore, but that, or
1: presence is not changing. I mean, by right. definition, presence is presence. Right. How could you have more or less presence, or a presence that's different than this one? Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> and you're laughing because you can see that. I'm laughing because I,
0: one time my wife and I went camping in Canyonlands National mm-hmm. Park in Utah, and uh, it's a, it's a rather Foreboding place in a way. You have to really be prepared to get out into the boonies and, and you know explore the, the, the canyon without dying, and uh, so we were sort of limited to our campsite and easy walks around that vicinity. And she went to the the camp host and uh, you know the, the park ranger guy, and she said, you know, here we are in this vast national park, you know, with all and she said, is there any more, you know, than this? And, and he kind of laughed and looked at her like, you know. You know what more could there be? This is, this is an amazing yes. place.
1: Yes. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that's one of the things that is realized is that there can't be any more perfection than there is in this moment. That yeah. siren is absolutely what it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be changed or improved upon or gotten rid of. It is what it is. Everything is shining with the absolute radiance of pure awareness. And that's, that will, you'll never get more or less of that. And that's part of the realization, is that it is absolute, regardless of what's showing up, regardless of the circumstances. All circumstances are shining by the same presence of awareness, and it doesn't have any gradations in it itself. Now, at the same time, the body-mind does continue to refine, as you say, and to become more sensitive and, and, and perhaps transparent to truth, but it's not goal-oriented, and that's the key. It's not like the body is going to become some perfect bionic body. What, what is it that I'm? What is it that I would be striving to be like? What ideal would I set up that would be perfect for me to attain? Yeah. That's all mind projection. That's part of pre-awakening sadhana. All right. So if we could if we could agree on a kind of post awakening sadhana that um, at every I, I I describe it as a timeless process of unfoldment post awakening sadhana timeless process so it's a paradox meaning it's there's an awareness of the perfection of every moment as it is and this is timeless this moment is timeless this presence and there's this relative unfoldment in time towards more and more transparency of the body-mind, you could say, but not of awareness.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's not particularly going anywhere. It's just joyful. It's joyful to be. It's joyful to, to, to express creatively, to be you know, in relationship. But it doesn't have to be going... Just like you don't listen to a, a symphony by Beethoven, you're not listening to it in order to get to the final note. Right. Like, I can't wait till the end of this, because that's going to... The whole thing is a joy. From, at yeah. every moment that you're listening to it, it's complete. The joy is in the total absorption. And to be the beauty of that, that's what life
0: is. I think that, and I think that's very natural. Um, I think that if a person is bound suffering and suffering, and you know not liberated, not awake, there's a desperation to achieve relief from that. Yes, which and, is natural. And there's a very strong individual desire, if you know, to you know to wake up, yes. uh, or at least there can be. Yes. Uh, but when waking up has taken place and relief, there, there's a tremendous relief and contentment, mm-hmm. and and then one just can rest in that. And I don't think that the evolution stops at any point. It's just that God has sort of taken over in the driver's seat and mm-hmm. you, you can just relax and enjoy the ride. You know, Santosh, contentment, becomes predominant enough yes. that the whole seeking energy drops off. Mm-hmm. There's, well, I think Well, I'm there's just...
1: more energy for, for other things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like being of service, mm-hmm. uh, being in true relationship. Right. with friends and family and loved ones whoever that might be a cup runneth over yeah yes yeah, so that's such a beautiful I mean when the when awakening was happening there was such a feeling of plenitude right what they what they would call the plenum you know this over abundance of
0: yeah
1: overflowing abundance I I, I saw as I, I still see it everywhere I can't see any boundary to this abundance mm-hmm. I can't see any edge or border to it all I see is just fullness mm-hmm. and emptiness at the same time mm-hmm. because it's couldn't but for the emptiness in which it appears by which it's known this empty knowing which it is I mean and it's again this is not abstract if we try to look for awareness we don't we can never find it it's there's an empty knowing or an empty awaring as Tony Packer my first teacher used to call it awaring to make it into a kind of a verb you know I think
0: Paul Hederman says something he has some some Mm, funny words (laughs)
1: May yeah, there, there's there's that sense of, of aliveness to it rather than awareness as this yeah. dead object this thing It's it's a, it's life. Mm-hmm. It's life itself and there's no beginning or end to life And that's just absolutely clear to me that there's no beginning or end to what this is And so the body takes on more of a universal uh, proportions because uh, we do have a, a an individual body in a relative sense But that individual body is woven with its infinite environment. There's no beginning or end to the the environment. It's part of an infinite network of being. Going back to my childhood question, what is on the other side of the universe when you get to it? And of course, the realization that dawned is there's no end to this. There's no beginning to this. But experientially, that revealed itself. So that the body became non separate from this beginningless and endless whatever whatever we call this. Mm-hmm. Whatever this is. The body is both individual and universal. And that's when I think the real flow of being starts to really run through uninterruptedly and without any sort of kinks in it. That there's a sense of freefall or free flow of just being this without Finding any limitation to it, any border or any place where beingness can get, or consciousness can get snagged, or there's no sense of getting stuck. I mean, what would that even mean? Mm. Everything is change and flow and flux. Nothing gets stuck, everything is fresh. It's just memory that gives the illusion that there's a sense of stuckness. But this is just totally new. This has never happened before, you know, this feeling, this sensation. And there's a sense of like joy about that, about just being awake to awakeness, which is all it is. It's just being awake to the fact that there is awakeness. It's being conscious of the fact that there is consciousness, which Nisargadana would call the highest meditation, is to be aware of being aware, to be conscious of being conscious. And not a person being aware, but just awareness is aware of being aware. And that is so freeing. Because there's no me who's against experience anymore. There's just a flow of experience with no center. And that's the key. No center. You told us
0: about your time with uh, Tony Packer mm-hmm. and um, Philip Kaplow. Mm-hmm. But uh, then I know you we also have a picture of Nisargadatta here. You never met him in person, no. but you considered him your root teacher. Yes. Of all the pictures you could have brought, you brought this one.
1: Because this is the one that's in I and That. Uh-huh. And it, it should. I was actually going to bring my copy of I in that because it's com- It's the copy I've had for twenty-two years. Yeah. And it's completely oh, dog ears. You know, It's just. It's a mess. I mean, yeah. it's, but I, I can't get rid of it. And this is the picture that was, was mm-hmm. in that, and I've just lived with that picture for mm. twenty-two years. So that's why I chose it, that one out of all the others. So yeah, he was. I had discovered, or he discovered me, um, when uh, I think I was eighteen, and had. I think it was Tony Packer who introduced me to him. Yeah. And. Uh, there was just an immediate resonance and he just completely seized my being. Mm-hmm. And the, the power the the incredible power and insight that, that came through was just unparalleled. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of great teachers, including Ramana, but there's no one for me who compares to the crystal clarity of Nisargadatta to his 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 transmission through I am that, which is remarkable. If you think about you know, the fact that that's translated from his original language by Morris Friedman, and uh, the power is still full force. And you feel like you're sitting there in his little studio in Bombay, yeah. you know, and that he could be smoking BDs right in front of you. It's that powerful that it, ha- <laughs> it has. It has an incredible transmission, and it always will for anybody who encounters that text. It's yeah. a living, breathing text. And it has the power to shift consciousness and to trigger realizations in a way that I have never seen in anything else. But we're all different. For some people that might come in talks with Ramana Maharshi. Sure. Or it might come in, you know, in yeah. any number of ways. But for me, it was definitive. And it found the foundation for everything else that came. I just lived him throughout the whole process. And when it seemed dark and, and pointless and um, altogether futile, I would always turn to him and there would always be a sense that this is possible. I knew it was true. I knew it was true immediately and the whole way through, although it took a long time to come to that realization for myself. And then later I met um, um, Rupert Spira and became deeply, deeply touched by his pointings, particularly at the path of inclusion and the, his, his extraordinary descriptions of the nature of consciousness and how there are no objects in experience and Consciousness is the reality of what we call objectivity. He was profoundly influential for me. Um, and I had a number of key awakenings through my engagement with his work, and I still draw in many ways from, uh, from him, even though I've developed a way of talking and expressing this. There are some really important you know, understandings that came through him. But he was prepared by the Nisargadatta. And then the other one was Muji, Who was such an overwhelmingly powerful force, just as as Rupert was. They were both sort of working synergistically in very different ways because they're such different expressions. They're rather opposites in in a lot of ways. But Muji um, really helped to clarify the nature of pure awareness, um, you know, and to open up the heart you know, to the wellspring of love, unconditional love and affection and creativity and spontaneity and intuition, all these things came from Rupert too. They were sort of both contributing, um, like the yin and the yang, towards some full understanding that was founded on my engagement with Nasari Dada, which was the foundation for that, mm-hmm. you know. So it was I'm just just a, just a tremendous amount of gratitude to all three of them, really. Great. Right. Yeah. You know.
0: So you've written a book, and mm-hmm. some people who will be watching this in a few years can buy that book now if they want to. But those who watch it right after I put it up might have to wait a year. Yeah, it's going to take a little while. Still to come in up. the works. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I think you're going to set up, or may you may have set up on your website by the time this airs, a uh, a way of signing up to be notified when the book is published. Mm -hmm. I would recommend that. Yeah. What's the book about?
1: Um, The book is tentatively titled The Uncreated Light of Awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been accepted by Non-Duality Press, which has recently been acquired by New Harbinger. So it'll take about a year to come out. And it's a book that um, examines the nature of awareness from the perspective of experience. And it contains a lot of experiential... Uh, contemplations and meditations that lead the reader into the direct realization of boundless awareness, mm-hmm. and to est- have that become established as the natural state. Um, and then there's, you know, kind of a deconstruction of the psychological self, and a kind of a re- reestablishment back in the seat of awareness. And then there's a chapter on integration, where this is kind of taken into our normal everyday lives so that it's lived in you know midst of um, fire and pressure so that it becomes really our lives become saturated with it this understanding at every level and that there's nothing that's left out and there's no sense that um, you know truth is not applicable to some aspect of life that it really everything becomes saturated in the understanding and that we're able to live and relate as love which is, at the end of the day, what it's all about.
0: Great. Yeah. Um, so you have alluded to working with people and with yes. groups and stuff like that, uh, and you live in the Bay Area. Um, so, But people will be listening to this from all over the world. So do you do like Skype mm-hmm. sessions with
1: people? All? I do. I do regular Skype sessions with people which work remarkably well. Actually, one of the most beautiful things to come out of the work I've been doing with people on Skype is the realization when I'm working with someone of this presence that we've been talking about, people who are in Australia and India and in just all corners of the world, when we tune in together, there is no distance, literally. It's the same presence. It's like falling into a wormhole and it just connects, you know, these two seemingly disparate people in space and time into this non-dual presence, which is so warm and juicy and... And in, in loving. And it's been a, just a beautiful experience. So I've been doing a lot of that and also um, doing online satsangs and be putting together some satsangs uh, in person and also doing retreats. I'm giving a retreat in Greece, mm, um, Greece. Uh, in July. Nice. Seven day retreat there and um, be some satsangs in London mm-hmm. and more to come. Great. So people can check the, all that out on the events page on my website. Which is? boundlessawareness.org.
0: No hyphen. No hyphen.
1: Okay,
0: great. So thanks, Michael. This has been great. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you. We should do it more often. Uh, I would love that. (laughs) So, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching. I hope you've enjoyed this. As most of you probably know, this is an ongoing series. And um, if you would like to be notified of future ones, there's a mailing list you can sign up for at batgap.com. If you'd like to check out past ones, go into the Past Interviews menu and you'll see hundreds of them organized and categorized in various ways. And check out the other menus too, because there are a lot of interesting little things and we keep adding stuff as time goes along. I started a quote section where whenever somebody sends me a quote or I come across a great, great little quote that I think, that I find inspiring, I'm adding it in a categorized kind of a way. We have a, a glossary of non-dual terms that someone sent me that I put up there. There's a geographical index where you can type in a city such as London, and you'll see what's coming up in London among all the people I've interviewed. You'll, see, you know, Once Michael puts in his information, you'll see the details about Michael's visit to London, and a bunch of other stuff. So just um, check out the menus, and we, continue, we, we hope to continue making this a, a more and more valuable resource for spiritual seekers and people in general, everywhere. So, see you next time.